What's up, church? Can we just give the Lord a hand? Amen. Good to, good to see you. I want to welcome those that are joining us online as well as the Edgewood campus. And uh, we are grateful to have you. I know there's a handful of you that this is the first time that you've been back with us in five months. And uh, while we have missed seeing you uh, physically, uh, we are uh, delighted uh, to continue growing together spiritually regardless of distance. And isn't it awesome that we have a God that doesn't social distance? Amen. Um, that we, we don't, it doesn't matter where we are or where we gather, that we can honor Him and worship Him with our lives. And so it's what incredible truth that we need to know is that we are not bound by a church building, uh, but we are a people of God, a priesthood of believers, and we can meet with Him wherever we go. Uh, today we are going to continue our series through the book of Hosea. If you've been joining us over the last handful of months, we are nearing the end. We'll wrap it up next week. Two weeks from now, we're going to kick off a, a new sermon series called uh, Hindsight is 2020, and we're looking forward to that. Uh, I'm, I'm stoked about it. I think it's going to be really good for us. Uh, but real quickly, um, if you've been traveling along with us through the book of Hosea, uh, we are talking about a group of people who are representing the northern tribes of Israel in the north after the kingdom split at the hands of Jeroboam I, Solomon's son, and David, the king of Israel that people know and love. It was his grandson. Uh, and in his foolishness, he split the kingdom in half. And ever since, they uh, began to do detestable things that they had learned uh, from other times in the past of Israel's history. Uh, they set up uh, images of, of gold statues of, of cows in, in the north and the south of the country. And they began to, in a sense, do what was detestable in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord gives warnings. He raises up uh, prophets to go and to turn back Israel's uh, mind and hearts, but yet they would not listen. And so you get to Hosea chapter 13. He goes, hey, listen, you wouldn't listen to my prophets, but you will listen uh, as you go down your own yellow brick road when I send lions and tigers and bears. Okay, Edgewood wasn't participating, and some of you weren't either, so let's try it again. Lions and tigers and bears. So you remember that classic movie, The Wizard of Oz. If you're under 13, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and that's okay. Uh, one of these days, you can watch that with your parents. Uh, but The Wizard of Oz, this incredible story about Dorothy and her little dog uh, named Toto as they go on a story uh, towards Oz down the yellow brick road. And on that path, at one point, uh, they are talking about being fearful of lions and tigers and bears. And the reason why is because uh, they're... Uh, she was with people who didn't have brains and didn't have courageous hearts. You remember the, the, the cowardly lion, right? A man of valor. Uh, well, here it is. In Israel's history, um, they are also stumbling down their own road of deceitfulness. And the Lord says, I'm going to destroy you with lions and tigers and bears. And it's going to be a detestable thing in your sight. And so here it is in Hosea 13, verse 1. It says that Ephraim, uh, when they spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, and he incurred guilt through Baal, and he died. Uh, what Hosea is saying, he goes, Ephraim, which is the leading tribe of the northern kingdom, and one of the, the leading tribes in Israel when they were established uh, by Jacob and his 
son Joseph, uh, he blessed the, his grandson Ephraim instead of the oldest, Manasseh. He said Ephraim's going to be the way that the Lord uses Israel. And so Ephraim became the leading tribe in Israel. And they were, uh, as the scriptures tell us, they were mighty men of valor. They were courageous men, valiant warriors. Yet the scriptures also tell us that Ephraim would not obey the Lord. Uh, they were instructed to remove the Canaanites from the land. And though they were warriors, they refused to do so. And so they began to, uh, in a sense, muddled themselves with other uh, Canaanites and their women, and they were fornicators, and they did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. As a matter of fact, they didn't obey the Lord at all. But these valiant uh, warriors liked to do things that were right in their own eyes. As a matter of fact, because they were valiant warriors, they loved to be in battle. They loved conflict, and they loved drama, and they loved to be a part of it. Matter of fact, uh, in one story in Judges chapter 8, you see that Gideon was instructed by God to gather 300 men. He goes to battle and he wins. The problem is, after he wins, Ephraim comes to him and goes, why didn't you pick us? Hey, we're the ones that are supposed to be the warriors here. Well, you think you're going to go to battle without us? And in their arrogance and their pride, uh, you would see that they were, they were a haughty people. Let me ask you a question. Can God ever take a haughty and a proud person and bring them low? Yeah. It's oftentimes in our pride that brings about a fall. And so they were wicked in the sight of the Lord. They were arrogant. They were boastful. They were self-reliant and proud. And so because of that, they began to do what we see in verse 2. And that means they sinned more and more. And they made for themselves metal images and idols skillfully made of their silver. All of them, the work of their craftsmen. It is said of them that they, those are the ones who offer human sacrifice and they kiss calves. The ideal uh, part that Jose is trying to help them see is not only were you wicked and self-reliant, but you made for yourselves images uh, of, of molten uh, metals. And he goes, and, and you weren't to do that. God instructed us not to do that. You made of yourself carved images and you bowed down to them. He goes, it was so lowly that you begin to do detestable things. And even a King Ahaz would sacrifice his own children at altars. He goes, and you were like kissing calves. He goes, you bow down to things that don't speak. And don't listen and don't hear. And he goes, and it's detestable that in your arrogance, you can't even recognize it. And so here it is in their haughty and proud and arrogant spirit, they have missed the mark. Reminds me of Proverbs chapter 13, verse 5 and 6, which just simply says this, and we'll put it for you up on the screen. It says, the righteous hate falsehood, but the wicked bring shame and disgrace. Then it goes on in verse 6 and says, righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. What, what the... The writer here is just simply saying, hey, you reap what you sow. You want to sow destruction? Then continue down a path of wickedness. Hey, if you want to have fruitfulness and righteousness and peace, hey, then hate what's false. Drive yourself to what's true. Verse 3 says, And therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls through the threshing floor, like smoke from a window. Uh, what he's saying, he goes, hey, just as the dew rises and it dissipates, uh, just as uh, the, the wheat at the threshing floor remains and the chaff or all the little particles, they blow off in the wind, or just like you start a fire in a chimney and the smoke willows away, he goes, that's the same as what's going to happen. This nation, just as it came, will dissipate. And then he tells us how. Verse 4, he says, Because I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, you know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. So he goes, even though you made images of metal, he goes, they don't listen, they don't hear, they won't save you. It is I who knew you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. 
He goes, I'm the one who called you out of Egypt. I'm the one who birthed you as a people. I'm the one who brought you out across the Red Sea. I'm the one who saved you from the Egyptians. I'm the one who established you. I gave you law at Mount Sinai through the prophet Moses. Moses is the one who would lead you. Uh, Eventually, you would go into the promised land, and though you get to the promised land and you deny me and don't believe me, eventually I'll take you and I'll provide for you. Even in the wilderness, I'm going to give you manna and water. I'm going to give you provision, even though you're knuckleheads. And he goes, eventually I'll take you through to the promised land. I'll take you through Kadesh Barnea. And eventually I'll take you in to where you live in a land dwelling with milk and honey. It's fruitfulness and your rebellion will be past you and you will have my blessing and you'll be my people and I'll be your God. You'll delight in me and I'll delight in you. I'll satisfy you. I'll meet your needs. I'll protect you. I'll give you everything you need. Sounds glorious, doesn't it? And yet they were foolish. Matter of fact, when they got to where their lives were being full and fruitful. Verse 6 says, when you had grazed, you became full. Hey, you were filled. And then there it was that your heart was lifted up, but therefore you forgot me. He goes, I led you into green pasture and still water. I gave you everything. I shepherded you. I cared for you. Reminds me of the words of David in Psalm 23. He goes, there I met your needs. But he goes, then I lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. And guess what? You should fear no evil, for you know that I would be with you, but yet you departed from that truth. And so things got hard for you. You forgot me, and so I gave you over. So friends, that's a great question. Well, how is it that somebody would forget God? And here's the deal. Israel, of all people, the the very one that uh, was established and created by this God is no longer having them as... they no longer have God's number one in their life. Which then brings up the real question, do you have God number one in your life? You're like, yeah, I mean, I think so. And here's what I would say, God doesn't want to be number one in your life. You're like, what? God doesn't want to be number one in your life. And the reason why is because if you have a number one, it means that you have a number two. And who is your number two? Your number two is probably maybe your spouse or your family or your kids. And then from there, maybe it's your your work or your church or whatever. But the thing is this, if you have a number one and a clear number two, it means that your number two could compete for your number one anytime. Matter of fact, think about that. Israel established a number one, and then they had a number two, number three, number four. And the problem is, is they get to a place where the created had flipped over the, cre- the creation. And so what happened was the number four became the priority over number one. And see, that, I think, is what Paul says in, uh, in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, all for the glory of God. What he is saying is God goes, I don't desire to be your number one. I desire to be your everything. I am your everything and everything else channels out of me. So we oftentimes think, well, just like the Israelites, well, I mean, I've got God and I've got my worship and I've got this altar that I bow down to and I've got incense that I bring before the Lord in the morning and the evening and on special feasts and other days of the year. But then I've got, I've got my family and I've got these attractive Moabite and Amorite women and Canaanite women. And I mean, I like them too. And I mean, no me wrong, but depending on where we're at in our relationship, they may be a little different order. I mean, I've got my kids, I've got my job, I've got my business. And then have you ever heard anybody who's like, hey, listen, I'm going to make a decision and it's going to affect you. And, and listen, it's not personal. It's just business. But here's the deal. That's not true for us who are believers in Christ. You and I as believers in Christ don't get to compartmentalize our life. We don't get to say, well, hey, this is our relationship with God. And then, hey, this is our family. And, and hey, you know, what we'll do here. And then here's our business. And then here's our entertainment side. We don't get to categorize our lives. We don't have number one, two, three, and four. And the reason why is because God competes with no one. 
What he says is, I want all of your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And then from there, everything else flows out of it. Now, you may not have your heart aligned with the Lord, and he not, may not be the priority in your life. Maybe your heart is not completely lined up with him, but the reality is he desires to be your everything. He was not Israel's everything. They were satisfied and they were filled, and they believed that they were the ones who provide the green and luscious grass. They're the ones who believe that they provided the fruitful figs and the lush grapes. That wasn't their provision. It was God's. And God says, and hey, listen, if you put your stock in yourself, can I bring you low? Can I take a prideful person and bring them as a fall? Can God do that? Yes. Now catch this. Lean in with me. God's about to do it. Matter of fact, he goes, listen, if you won't listen to my prophets, you won't listen to my law, I bet you will when the lions and the tigers and the bears show up. Oh my. And here they come. Verse 7. So I am going to be to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast, as a tiger. See it? Uh, I'm going to rip them open. And then Hosea goes, he's going to destroy you, O Israel, for you are against God. God says, you're against me and against your helper. Job said it this way in Job chapter 1, verse 21. He goes, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'm going to return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Can the Lord give? Yes. Can the Lord take away? Absolutely. Does he have the power to do that? Yes. And what he said is this, Israel, I gave to you, and now I'm going to take it away. I am going to lay you bare, and you are traveling down your yellow brick road looking for a paradise like Oz, and I am going to trouble you. And the reason I'm going to trouble you is because you were wicked, you were wicked and you were evil, and you were vile, and you are detestable on my side, and you have continued to do what's right in your own eyes. You are prideful. You are arrogant. It doesn't matter what you say with your lips. Your heart is far from me. Friends, can you have a cognizant mind that you know that God is there, and ultimately He is the source of strength and provision, and yet your heart is still far from Him? Can I just tell you that's who's gathering across our nation oftentimes in, in moments even like this? In our despair, our minds tell us that God is good, but our hearts are far from Him. Friends, that should not be the case. When that is the case, we know that God is good. Our hearts are far from Him. We continue to utter words like this in Romans 6.1. Can I continue to sin? And we would say yes. And Paul says no, by no means. If your heart is not far from God, it means that you walk in his path. You delight to be in his presence and you delight to live in righteousness. You seek peace. You pursue it, is what Paul would say. That's what believers do. But here's the deal the lions and the tigers and the bears are there and they are going to bring Israel down low. And here's how it'll happen in 722 BC, the king of Assyria comes and they rip open the hearts and the, the bodies of their children. They dash them to pieces. War is brutal. And this is war. This isn't like, oh, hey, they're going to come and politely haul off Israel and they're going to say, hey, look, we know who your God is. And we're going to... They don't care. And they come in and they, they bring and they topple all of their leaders. They haul them off and then they take their, their women and the children, the ones they want to keep, and they make them their slaves and the rest of them they kill. And it is a brutal picture of battle. And it is a mockery and it's detestable for God. And here's what Hosea says. God is going to say these words. In the midst of all the, 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 the deportation, verse 10, he goes, Now where is your king now? 
Hey, where's your power source? Hey, who, who is it you're going to turn to? Who's going to save you in all of your cities? Hey, where are your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and prince. He goes, you remember you wanted a king? You wanted somebody to rule rightly? I gave you a king. You remember Saul and how wicked he was? He goes, that was your first king. And then it was followed by David, a man after God's own heart. But you remember how imperfect he was? You remember the woman that he was with? You remember the husband that he sent to the front lines and had kid, killed? You remember all of, his, all, of his, all of his sin and rebellion? And yet that's the best king you ever had. And he goes, then you had Solomon. He was a wise man, but he departed from my truth. He chased after vanity like chasing after the hot wind. He goes, and then he had children. You remember his children? He took, their children uh, took and divided our entire kingdom. Matter of fact, the north is no longer with the south because of Solomon's children, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They get in a fight and they battled. And he goes, and ever since all of that's transpired, he goes, Israel has never had a king of my choice. Never once did you consult me when it was a king. You did whatever you want. He goes, where are your kings now? Hey, where, where are all these men of valor now? Where is Ephraim now? I thought you were high and mighty. Where are you now? He goes, you can't stand up to the God that brings about lions and tigers and bears, can you? which just brings this incredible picture to our minds. He goes, I'm going to bring you low. Verse 12 says, The iniquity of Ephraim has bound you up. His sin is kept in store. He goes, just as Ephraim collected and bound up their sin, God has bound up his anger. He goes, and he's going to bring the full wrath and the full judgment and the full fury of God against his people. He goes, why? Because you have been foolish. Even from verse 13, he goes, from the very inception, the pangs of childbirth that came for you, he goes, you were an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself in the opening of the womb. He goes, when you have a wife or a mother that's going to have a child, he goes, wouldn't it be foolish for the child to cling on forever? Even though it's a comfortable source of delight, he goes, at some point, that child has to exit the mother's womb. And when they do so, life is going to be tough. Why? Because they got to take their first breath. And they got to fight for it. And as they cry for their first breath, they got to realize that now I have to nurse. I have to feed myself. And at some point, I have to begin to walk. And I have to begin to grow up. And I have to begin to mature. And I don't know about you, but in their times in our lives, adults, we're like, man, I just wish I could just be a child again, just like be held. Wouldn't that be awesome? To just re return to your mother's womb and just, ha just hang on. He goes, that's what Israel has done in their sin. They have clung to their sin. They refuse to be moved away. They, like a child in a mother's womb who does not want to exit, Israel does not want to exit from their sin patterns. They have continued in a, a cycle of destruction. And he goes, it will bring, be brought to their attention. Verse 14, he goes, and so, so when it's brought to their attention, when I'm going to destroy Israel, he goes, what do I do? What do I say? Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. What the Lord says to Hosea, he goes, hey, what am I to do to the people? And this is the great dilemma. Lean in with me. What do you do when you have a God who is supposedly loving and you've got people who are wicked and apart from it. Can a loving God really punish and kill people who are wicked and still be loving? I mean, if God is so loving, can't he kind of stop all of this anyway? And you've got this real tension about good and evil and God and his holiness. And here's what, here's what in the middle of this, all these questions as Israel's going, okay, I get it, we've, we've messed up, but haven't we continued to bring our altar before you? The prophet Malachi goes, absolutely, you, you continue to bring the altar before me, and you bring a sacrifice with you, but your sacrifice is blind. 
and the lamb's leg is broken. I don't want that. He goes, it doesn't do you any good. He goes, your heart's far from me. And they go, okay, well, what do you want? He goes, I don't want anything. Now you need to understand that you are going, you're heading down to death and Sheol. And when he says these words, you might ask yourself the question, well, why doesn't he stop it? And he goes, because compassion's hidden from my eyes. And here's what he's saying. He goes, you need to understand. And he goes, let one thing be clear. Darkness is not winning. The adversary is not stronger. Sheol is not the victor. Sheol is a place of torment and death. It's the word Hades or the abyss or even where eventually we'll get the idea of hell from. It is a place of of doomy darkness. It is a place that Jesus would speak of later as a place of destruction. It is a place where people, their, heart, their hearts are far from God and they've displayed it through their, their fruits and their, their evil ways. They will be apart from God forever. And here's what God says. Should I just take you and rescue from Sheol? I mean, should I just take away the sting of death where you don't taste the consequences? And he goes, no, I'm not doing it. And he goes, and what you need to be clear of is this. It's, I'm not doing it because I can't do it. I'm doing it because I choose not to do it. It's not that I lack the authority to do so. I do it because you are going to eat of your vomit. You are going to eat of your ways. And he goes, and that's your fault, not mine. So the sting of death is not removed because you chose this. You will face Sheol. It will be dark. It will be treacherous. Your thirst will not be quenched. Verse 15 says, and though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come. He goes, yeah, I get it. The reason you're going to taste Sheol is because at one time you looked really good. Matter of fact, wasn't Ephraim mighty among his brothers? The other nations looked to you and they go, wow, that's the people of God. But he goes, no longer do they look at you like that. Matter of fact, they make a mockery of not only you, but their God. Why? Because you continue to, to do foolish things. He goes, and the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come. So who produces the, the, the wind? The wind of the Lord. And, and here's what happens. A high pressure center comes off the ridge and it meets an upper level ridge. And when that, that all combines, it is a hot wind that continues to get warmer and windier. And it is all produced by the Lord. So friends, don't be confused. God is the one bringing about the destruction. He is the one who says, lions and tigers and bears will destroy you. Oh, my. He is the one who says that I provided for you, but yet you chose something that dissipates. And so he goes, this wind came and it rises from the wilderness. And when that happens, a scorching east wind comes. Guess what? You get parched, right? Your spirit can't be quenched. It's just like you're chasing after vanity. You're pursuing things that don't fill. He goes, your fountain shall dry up. Your spring shall be parched, and it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. And he goes, and it's going to happen from Ephraim to Manessen to Reuben to Dan to all of them. And he goes, and it's going to go driving straight to your capital. And they're going to come in there, and they're going to topple the walls of Samaria. They're going to take your kings, and they're going to deport them, and they're going to take your women. And here's what he says, Samaria shall bear her guilt. Where the king sits on his throne, we're going to start there and we're going to work our way out because they have rebelled against her God. Israel has rebelled. And because of that, they shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women will be ripped open. I'm going to read that one more time because I want you to see and understand and feel the imagery here. It says that their little ones will be dashed to pieces and their pregnant women will be ripped open. The reality is, is that war is... Is dangerous and it's dark and it's harsh and it's grim and it will destroy people emotionally, physically, spiritually, 
And certainly, uh, in every way, death will come to fruition. It is that bad. And here's what causes wars. You ready? Our selfishness. James says in verse, chapter 4, uh, verses 1 and 2, he goes, what is it that causes people to quarrel? Isn't it your selfishness? Isn't that what starts wars? Yes. Israel's selfishness would start a war with Assyria. And listen, they will be brought low. Which then brings this question up that if you've got this incredible imagery and God is going to allow women and children and men to be destroyed, people to be killed as a part of his judgment, how does a, how does a God do that? Like particularly a God who loves people. And didn't God promise the people of Israel that he would be with them and he would be their God and they would be his people? And yeah, listen, let me explain something. Not only does God say, I'm going to give you land, people, and blessing. Here's what God also says. God says, hey, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to raise you up and you're going to be a great vine. You're going to be a choice vine. You're going to be a luxurious people. You're going to bear much fruit. And people from the nations are going to come and take delight in you. They're going to be taking refuge in. I'm going to give you a Messiah. I'm going to give you the promise and all the nations will be blessed. Here's the deal. How does the world get blessed when a nation is far from God? Now, here's the deal. Here's the mind of God. You ready for this? Lean in because if you don't, you're going to be lost. How does a holy God tell people to follow him? When they don't follow him, he brings judgment. But get this, he brings judgment from a wicked people that 100 years earlier he saved. So Jonah, a prophet of the Lord, was told to go to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh even though he didn't want to go to Nineveh. And he tells us later in the book, I don't want to go to Nineveh because these people are going to repent and they're going to see the gracious and the kindness of our God. And these people, Nineveh, Assyria, don't, they don't deserve God's grace. And, but yet here it is, out of, in some ways, kind of a hard heart, Jonah walks into the capital city of Nineveh and he tells the people in eight words to repent. They do so from the king down. They repent. The entire city of 120,000 people fall on their face in sackcloth and ashes. They repent before their God and God gives them mercy. A hundred years later, in their depravity, God uses the wicked and rebellious people of Syria to bring his judgment upon his own people. So God saves the people to, in a sense, use them to bring about judgment on his own people. Now catch this, that's not the end of the story. God also made a promise to Israel earlier on that whoever blesses you, I'll bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. So not only does he use Assyria in his righteous judgment, he brings about punishment to the people of, of Israel. And then after this, guess what? He goes, now I'm going to have to punish Assyria because they came against my people. Is your head hurting yet? Which is why Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 55, he goes, the Lord's ways are not your ways and his thoughts are not your thoughts. What he's saying is, who are you and I to discern the heart of God and the mind of God? We can't do it. But here's the problem is that we try to. In our humanity, in our fallibility, in our sinfulness, we try our best to explain God away to people. Matter of fact, there's a large part of us who we believe that God is powerful to save. And because he doesn't save everybody, then it must mean that he's not that powerful. There's some that would believe that. Even some of your friends would presume to believe that because God doesn't save the whole world, he's just not powerful enough. Or because God won't forgive everybody in the world that he's not loving enough. Matter of fact, we might even presume to think, well, you mean to tell me that God is not so loving that not everyone in the world can be saved and ultimately that everybody will be saved? And I would say, here's what I would tell you, is that it's a very difficult thing. I'm going to unpack it for you real quickly. And so you need to lean in. I'm going to go through it really quickly. I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures and references. I'm not going to put it off on the screen for you because I'm going to put it in the Stone Point News to you tomorrow. It's going to come to your email. You can get all my sermon notes real quickly. Four weeks ago, I put in my sermon notes a forty or I mean a fifty dollar four wins gift card out of a thousand people 
I had four people email me, which means to say that most of our people doesn't open the Stone Point News. And if you do, you don't read it. And that's okay. But what I wanted to tell you is that today and tomorrow, you're going to need the Stone Point News because I'm going to go through it really quickly. I'm going to give you a lot to think about, chew on, think, speak to in your journey groups with community. If you're not in community, don't have anybody to talk to, find a friend and go and tell them the good news of the gospel, even though it doesn't mean that it's necessarily good news. And here's why it's not good news. Because just as God deals with the wickedness of Israel, he's going to deal with you and I the same way. It's not any different. He deals with everyone on the planet the same way. And here's what you need to know is that Israel was wicked and so are you. Do what? Yes, you were sinful and you were deceitful. The scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says to the church of Rome, there is not one righteous, not even one. There is not one good deed about you, not one righteous person on the planet. 13 verses later in Romans 3.23, he goes, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So real quickly, I'm going to take a poll on both campuses. If you don't pay attention, you're either asleep or you're, not, you're out of your mind, okay? And so here it is. You ready? Wake up, Edgewood. You're either asleep or you're out of your mind. Anyone in here that's a sinner, raise your hand. You've sinned before in your life, okay? And so because you've sinned before in your life, he says the wages of that sin is death. There is ultimately a punishment because you are sinful and you're deceitful. Uh, David, the king of Israel, after... Um, having fornication with a woman that wasn't his wife named Bathsheba. They had a child together. The child ultimately uh, did not live because of sinful rebellion, because of David covering up his sin, sent a man to the front lines and had him killed as a murderer. The king of Israel did all this. Um, he later comes back and he prays this in Psalm 51 verse 5. He goes, Lord, I know that I was brought forth in iniquity and I was sinful even as my mother conceived me. He goes, even as I took my first breath, as I came out Desiring to cling to my mother's womb, I came out anyway. And when I took my first breath, I was wretched and sinful already. That's what the reality is. Isaiah the prophet would tell Judah in the south. He says, you guys are unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And he refers to Judah as um, a, a lady's rags in a menstrual cycle. He goes, that's what your polluted garments are. He goes, you are like a leaf that fades away. Your iniquities, they condemn you. You're going to be like the wind, and you're going to be taken away. What he says is you're sinful, you're unrighteous, you're unholy, you're rebellious, you're wicked. Jeremiah says it this way in chapter 17, verse 9. He goes, your heart is sick. It's deceitful. Friends, that is the reality of our Bible. Israel was sick. They were deceitful, they were arrogant, they were prideful, and they did what was detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Listen, every one of us does too. Crazy, right? Our sin is wretched. And you might be here and you might, I don't think I'm that wicked. Listen, if you've ever done anything that, that was sinful, which means that you did or said or thought something that wasn't a part of God or broke his heart, you are rebellious. But here's the crazy thing is in our rebellious nature, you also have to think about a God who is perfect and just and right. So here's the deal. Can God judge anyone he wants the way he wants and still be perfectly just and right and loving? Which is crazy because that's who he is. But Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, he goes, God is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. He is a God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is he. He goes, God is not sinful, never has sinned, never did, thought, or said anything that was sinful. He was perfect in everything he does. He's just and upright, which means he makes no mistakes. Even in his judgments, he's never, met, he's never failed. In Psalm chapter 18, verse 30, it says, The God, 
this God, the one we worship, he is, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who takes refuge in him. So his word is perfect. He's never uttered anything that was not perfect. And so not only is he perfect and upright, he is also true to his word. He will not back down on what he says. The crazy thing is the prophet Habakkuk actually tells the people of Israel too that the, that the Lord in chapter 1 verse 13 will not even look upon evil because he's so holy, which means that he can't even... He can't look upon us and our evil because we are so sinful and he is so holy. Even that separates us. A great chasm. Crazy, right? His eyes are too pure to see such evil. Psalm chapter 9, verse 8 says that he will judge the world in his righteousness and he judges the people with uprightness. So what he's saying is, is that the scriptures tell us that we are deceitful and wretched and we're sinners and that God is perfectly loving, holy, upright, and just. Which means however God in his perfection chooses to deal with you and I as sinners is his deal and he's still right now that's crazy because a lot of us we go no no that's not even fair there's no way that you can tell me that the God of heaven and earth is going to do that to us he is not that kind of God and listen I'm just going to tell you this the God of the Bible is not the God the Americans have made up in their mind Most of the conversations I have around the Bible are people who don't know the Bible and don't know the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is perfectly just, righteous, loving, and holy, and he can do as he pleases. And he doesn't need you or I to agree with it in any way. Why? Because even as you agree with something, you are agreeing with your own arrogance and trying to understand the heart of God, and that too is sin. Do I need to say that again so you can wrap your head around it? God is perfect and just and loving and right in all he does in all his ways. You and I are wicked, rebellious, in darkness, and we deserve to stay there. And here's what I want you to understand. As we deal with that, um, what you need to know is that your sin will have a consequence. The reason your sin will have a consequence is because we are not good judges. Matter of fact, let's just talk about this real quickly. As we think about sin having a consequence, what you and I need to understand is that you are not going to be judged. Listen carefully. You're not going to be judged on the level of your sin or even the levels of sin that you have done in your past. It has nothing to do with the levels or the degrees of separation of God from your sin problem. So it doesn't in some way disqualify the sexually immoral from the one who is just a slanderer in his tongue. It doesn't separate the one who occasionally has a, a corrupt thought from the one who is a reviler and a murderer. It's not the degree of your sin that separates you from God. It is the degree of His holiness that separates you from your sinfulness and Him from your sinfulness. Do you understand? The dilemma is that God is perfect and you and I are not. We are so not perfect that we can't even decide where we land on mercy and justice. So think about it this way. If you have a person that's harmed you, you desire justice. If you are the offender and you have harmed someone, you drop to your knees and you desire mercy. Yeah? Crazy thought. Here's the crazy thought is you can see someone in the news and you would say, oh, they ought to be, they, they ought to be guilty. Like they, they, ought to, they deserve what they've got. You know a friend who has a similar offense and you're praying for God's mercy on your friend. See, the degree of separation that we have in our thought and our mind often determines what we think and do. And what I'm telling you is, is that that's why you and I have no business judging 
others and what they should or should not get from a holy and righteous God who knows all judgments. That's why Jesus writes these words or says these words in Matthew chapter 7 as he's kind of concluding up the Sermon on the Mount. He goes, hey, listen, you ought to just think about judgment this way. Judge lest you be judged and to the degree that you desire to be judged. And then he unpacks that a little further. What he's not saying is, hey, don't judge somebody. I make judgments all the time. My kids aren't going home with the ice cream man, okay? Does that make sense? That's a judgment. You can call me wrong. You can that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying don't use wisdom and intellect and, and judgment. That's not what he's saying. And that's how oftentimes you don't have the business to judge me. No, we do. We can. But what he's saying is, is you shouldn't judge unless you're willing to be judged at the same degree. What he's saying is simply this. Don't plead for mercy on your behalf when you want your offender to be guilty. Don't go to your brother, and he unpacks this thought a little more, and he goes, don't go to your brother and say, hey, there's a log in your eye, and, or a speck in your eye when you forget that there's a huge log in your own. Do you understand the point? He goes, listen, you need to understand that it's your wickedness and God's holiness that separates you. And you also need to understand that there is a consequence for your sin. Not the, the level or the degree of your sin, but the fact that you can't even decide where you land on simple things like justice and mercy. So who are we to understand the heart and the mind of God? But what you should understand is this, because God is holy and just, and he cannot look upon evil in his holiness, he goes, sin must be condemned, and it must be punished. And so that's why Paul writes to the church in Rome in Romans 6.23, and goes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he is, you deserve death and separation and condemnation. And God is perfectly right and just if he condemns all of us, just like Israel, to Sheol forever. Or Hades or hell or whatever word you want to use. He is perfectly right in doing so. Romans chapter 5 tells us in verse 12, the reason we have it is not even because of our sin. So maybe you even make the case, you go, well, I'm not that bad of a sinner. He goes, well, your father Adam was. He got the ball started. And whether you think that you're a sinner or not, the balls continue to spiral downhill. Y'all remember the Goonies? And I think, or no, no, it wasn't the, the Goonies. It was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he's running from the rock. Yeah, the rock hits us all. Why? Because it's been spiraling downhill ever since, right? I think it's the Goonies too, friends. <laughs> Which brings about the question, Israel, is God holy and righteous just? Can he overlook Israel's sin and still be perfectly right? Lean in with that real quickly. If God is perfect and just, can he overlook sin and rebellion and still be perfect and right? And the answer is no, because then he would no longer be holy and right. You understand the God dilemma here? Do you see the humanity dilemma here? But here's the deal. He goes, um, how do I punish guilt? And he goes, here's how I do it. He goes, I rip up people. I bring about lions and tigers and bears in people's lives. And when they are before me, I will lay them bare. I will bring you naked and exposed, is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 4.13, no creature will be hidden from my sight, but all will be naked and exposed, and his eyes will be upon him, and he must give an account. Hosea says that he's going to swoop in like a lion, a tiger, a bear. He's going to rip open the hearts and the breast of your women, and he's going, to, he's going to lay your children bare. And he goes, and there's nothing you can do about it. And he goes, and he is perfectly right in doing so because he is holy and just and you are arrogant and sinful and wretched and you have been from the day you were established. And he goes, friends, I'm gonna, he's going to do the same with us. Every one of us are going to stand before God and we are going to be laid bare before him. It's going to be worse than doomsday. It is going to be worse than any apocalyptic movie you've ever watched. 
You are going to be empty and bare before him. Jesus said this way. He goes, you are going to go into eternal punishment and only the righteous will inherit eternal life. Are you and I righteous? And the answer is absolutely not. So who deserves eternal punishment? Sinners, in which all of us just raised our hand and said, we are it. Paul, the apostle, goes, I am the foremost, the chief of all sinners. Friends, what I want you to understand, it's not the level of your sin that separates you. It's the fact that you and I worship a holy God who's never sinned that separates you. And so here's what I would just tell you. When you start thinking about eternity, you need to stop thinking about what I can do to and somehow appease God and reduce the level of my sin. The level of your sin doesn't matter. It is the level of God's holiness that matters. Capiche? And so he goes, you're doomed. You are doomed. But then God lavishes love upon us. And Romans chapter 5 says, and Christ died for us. That while you and I were yet sinners, he sent the Christ. And listen, can I explain something to you? God's judgment, his vengeance, his excellent purity and righteousness did not change even when he dealt a blow to his own son. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 53 says he's going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And listen, do you know what a lamb led to the slaughter means? It means that his son, as he lays his life down on the tree of Calvary, is going to be bare-naked, and he's going to be exposed. And they beat him with a cattail 39 times until his guts, his innards were falling out. And they made him carry his own cross down the, the road of Calvary up to a hill of Golgotha in which he was nailed and crucified and punished. And God poured out his wrath because he is holy and justice and perfect and he is pure. And he gave him every ounce of vengeance that he could put on people on his son. To the point that even in agonization, his son says, Father, why? Why have you forsaken me? He bore the Calvary tree. And he goes, what do you want to do with it? He goes, you get to choose Christ or you get to choose your life and your arrogance and your rebellion. He goes, it is your choice, but you need to know that you will be laid bare. And when you're laid bare, he will either say, depart from me for I never knew you, or he will say, child, come into my presence, not because of the level of your sin, but the level of holiness in which was redeemed through my son, who is perfect in every way and never sinned. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, verse 21, that he who knew no sin, Jesus became sin on our behalf. You understand? He stood in our place. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise Lord. Like that, friends, that's when we become uh, like our African-American friends. We celebrate. We say amen. That's it. You understand? Like we need to learn something from our brothers and sisters. Why? Because we and our rebellion don't have to be ripped open and scourged. Why? Because one has been ripped open and scourged and crucified on our behalf. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So today there are some friends of mine in this room following us online that we need to say, Lord, I'm bare before you. I'm a sinner I've been trying to do this the wrong way. Matter of fact, I'm here this morning because I've been away from church, the, the house of God, for a long time. And we're even confused right there because, look, the house of God is living in us. But, you know, I, I don't think I understood it. And today is the day. And so, listen, today is the day that maybe you would say, Lord, I get it. I am sinful and rebellious. And I'm going to live apart from you forever because you're holy. 
And listen, can I just tell you that that is for everyone. And so you look to your friend who you would look at them and you see them and their immorality and, and their particular sin that in our, our particular nation is categorized as high risk. And listen, I want you to realize it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with where you are. And the Lord can lay you bare one day before him or he can lay you bare right now in this moment as you trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you've never done that, here's what it looks like. It simply means that you come before God, you drop to your knees with a contrite heart and a broken spirit, and you go, Lord, I am a mess. I am sinful and rebellious and arrogant. I am going to dissipate. My life is a vapor. I came from death, uh, from dust, and dust I'm going to return. And so, Lord, I get that, and I know my life is fleeting. It may end today. It could end next week, or it could be another 30 or 40 years from now. Well, Lord, I don't have time to waste. Lord, would you forgive me? Would you be Lord and boss of my life? And would you place your wrath that is coming my way, spiraling downhill towards me, will you put that on your son Jesus? And would you give me eternal life? And will you help me to walk in a way that proves to others that you are the God of my life? If you've never done that, today's the day. I can't wait. I'll be right up here. would love to talk to 100 of you if, that, if that's what it takes. But listen, we shouldn't leave out of this place and have any question about who God is and what he can do. And so may we trust him. God of the Bible. For others of us, we've been waffling. Our minds and our hearts haven't been connected. Our, our minds tell us to do something, but our heart's far from God. Listen, it's time to get right. It's time to say, Lord, here it is. Like, challenge me. Psalm 51, David says, return to me the joy of your salvation. Lord, remind me that if you did save me, you want to sanctify me. Lord, don't let me stumble through life on a path of sinfulness and rebellion. Lord, help me to align my heart with you. Friends, what a great day to respond. Amen? And so let's do so in prayer and in worship. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. Lord, what a tremendous blessing it is to be able to discover the truth of your word. Lord, we are either going to face your wrath as we walk down the golden pathway of life, hoping to acquire all the possessions and find ourselves in the land of Oz, a dreamy place called the American dream. But if we continue that path, Lord, we know that we are going to be destroyed by a God that resembles lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, we are going to be laid before you. And Lord, we are guilty already as we sit, as we think in our own minds. We are even questioning the mind of God, which makes us sinful. And Lord, here it is. We are trying to understand your righteousness and your holiness. And Lord, we know we can't do that apart from you and your son. And so Lord, would you... Would you remind us that you sent your son, the Christ, to be laid bare? That just as he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 to be born again, I pray that we would be born again. I thank you, Lord, that you tell us whoever believes in your son, though he dies, he will live. And so, Lord, we look forward to being able to live in our eternal home with you, knowing that it's not about seeing Aunt Sally again or Uncle Barney, but it's about seeing our holy God who took the place on Calvary's tree for us. And so may we look high and lifted up to our King and may we let you rule and reign in our lives until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen.